0: This podcast is made possible by the generosity of listeners like you. Kindly consider a contribution through Patreon or PayPal. Links are in the details box. Patreon is a monthly subscription that you can cancel anytime, and PayPal is a one-time donation. Any amount is appreciated. And follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and the handle The Beirut Banyan. And you can find us on our YouTube channel with the same name and you can start watching the episodes as they're released. Thank you for listening, and thank you for watching. I'm Rani Shatah, and this is the Beirut Banyan. Everyone should know for this episode, we've tried, uh, I think, six different attempts. This is the seventh one. Again... Thank you, Lena, <laughs> And I, I appreciate you being patient on just these technical issues. I'm glad it's happening with you. And I know that you're patient because you have patience for many things. Middle East politics, uh, economic reform, Chatham House and Metallica. And there's a lot more music issues, too, that I think they you can't be that into metal and also be uh, Uh, impatient. I think you have to have patience to to really enjoy that kind of aggressive music. So anyway, we're going to get into all of this. Again, thank you. And um, COVID-19 aside, (laughs) which explains why this is happening this way. uh, Unable to meet in person. Um, I had planned a trip to Europe and to do several interviews in in Paris. That's off the table. I know you're in London, you're stuck at home and uh, we're sort of dependent on this kind of interaction. It's still a thrill to meet you, regardless. It doesn't matter how we're, we're meeting for the first time. Um, I want to get your opinion on the youth factor and the demands of the youth and whether or not they hesitate when they see uh, uh, the sort of the older generation maybe taking a step back and concerned over whether it's flashbacks to war or flashbacks to instability and whether or not the youth has within them today to actually translate the rage that we see, the demands. And I say all of this with the caveat that the regime has not fallen. The the state is still more or less the same state it may be weaker, it may be more cautious, it may be willing to make certain cosmetic changes. But the state is still there. And the demands are not met and the protesters are still pushing. So Does the average citizen on the street, in particular, the youth, have that kind of capability to yield positive political change? And whether or not the cat appears in the podcast is completely up to you.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Right on cue. She just because I'm sitting in her seat. That's why. Let's just remove the cat for now. So when it comes to Lebanese youth, I'm very impressed. And this is what gives me hope about the future because they are not going to put up with the things that the older generation has put up with. Mm. Their demands come from awareness about the world. Uh, their sense of reference or terms of reference are not just about Lebanon, they are about global governance. They can see how other people in the world are living. And can see that there is another way. Whereas perhaps for their parents, feudalism and the kind of patron-client system is all they knew. And they probably kept electing the same people because they thought there is no alternative. And they were thinking very short-term. Mm. Whereas these young people on the streets are thinking long-term. Their demands are about reforming a political system, which is not something that can happen overnight. but the concern is always that it's much easier to say what you don't want and much more difficult to actually create something new and say exactly what kind of system you want and how you're going to get there what roadmap you're going to use in order to make it happen Mm -hmm. these youth don't have that experience yet because they're still young but they have time which actually the powers that be don't have because the powers that be in lebanon happen to be the same generation that ruled the country during the war and they're now very old and they're not going to live forever even though they would love to and think they will um so i think what we're seeing in lebanon now is the beginning of change that's why i called it a social revolution back in october and i still stand by that description Mm. it's not something that we're gonna see anytime soon, but it's the first moment of meaningful change.
0: And this is the first moment in my lifetime that I've seen the momentum persist. And I look back to the You think movement, even though it did drag on, it did sort of take a life of its own. But then almost overnight, things kind of just people went home. And it was Mm -hmm. geographically limited to Beirut. The March 2005 protests came and went and the Syrian army did leave. But of course, that kind of radical change never took hold. But today, seven months into an ongoing protest, it is quite remarkable that despite Coronavirus, despite economic pain and everything we both know about that the demands are not met, and the protesters are not giving up. And I think the youth are playing the major role here. And I just watched these protests from afar. Now, I was there for the first three months of the protests. I've been watching them for the last 3 months and it's the same images it's the youth and this horrible incident in Tripoli I mean this is a youth led moment the youth are upset of course the older generations are taking part too but it's the youth kind of feeling a particular immediate pain and I like that you 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 kind of you're comparing this to a global issue that this is Lebanon looking at the world and expecting more from its state not less and that's all these things line up for potential positive change, but if the core issues are not met, meaning if the reform, let's say, if this IMF bailout happens, if the state is more or less intact afterwards, if a few politicians are thrown under the bus, if the issue of of weapons beyond state control are not addressed, is there hesitation here that Lebanon could just kind of end up in a situation that it's familiar with, which is there are episodes of change. They're very gradual, they're very long, but they tend to not end up in a better place. Long-term things continue to gradually decline. And I don't want to say this as being pessimistic or or blaming the protesters on anything, but just the fact that it's still hard to imagine the state really properly addressing its issues. And it's still hard to imagine the protesters able to achieve permanent political change?
1: Well, the political transformation is not linear. It's not a process that is an upward uh, trajectory that doesn't uh, stop and eventually reaches this uh, panacea. Mm. Uh, sadly, it doesn't work that way. Democratic transformations have ebbs and flows. There's regression along the way, sacrifices, sometimes conflicts. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm hoping no more conflicts in Lebanon, but certainly we've seen waves of regression happen and we will probably see more. But that doesn't mean that we give up and it doesn't mean that the process has stopped or that this is it. Um, The onus is really on the people because the powers that be are benefiting from the status quo. Why would they change it? They were militiamen who became politicians and acquired huge wealth as a result, so that now the political elites and the economic elites in Lebanon are the same. So there's no incentive for them to change the system. If anything, as demonstrated by the 2015 protests, we saw different politicians that had, until that moment, been arguing with one another, political rivals, once faced with the street, demanding a change in the status quo, these politicians suddenly got together and teamed up against the people. So even if you have competing elites in the system, they still benefit from the system and they will team up against the people if they think that um, the status quo is going to be shaken. So reform from the top is not something I'm counting on in Lebanon. Maybe in the
0: short term, mm, but not mm. the long term. Okay, so in in that sense, the IMF bailout, the, the discussion of an IMF bailout, or at least the, what seems to be the first step in that direction. Is there any risk there that this could unintentionally turn the regime into something that is even worse than what we see now? It could be scoring points and kind of internal feuding. There was an article that was released earlier today, I, I believe it was Jeff Feltman, it was a Brookings piece, about the sort of the the risk of having this turn into something that's worse for the protester. And I I mean, Financial Times also released a recent piece along those lines saying that this could turn into score settling as opposed to proper reform. And I, I only worry in that sense that the state could be given a lifeline. Whether that's intended or not, it kind of preserves, it shields the regime from addressing protester concerns.
1: Well, first of all, I don't see the state and the regime as being the same not in Mm. Lebanon not Mm. anywhere when we say state we're talking about a system of power that embraces competition and contestation and that is a healthy thing within the state there are institutions some are public institutions like uh, ministries etc and some are civil institutions so preserving the state I'm all for that but preserving the regime that captures the state is a whole other issue and what we are risking in Lebanon is this, because until now, most I will say, uh, foreign aid coming to Lebanon gets channeled through different entities controlled by the powers that be in the country, whether formally or informally. So, so for controlled example, by the,
0: controlled by the regime as opposed to the state here. And that, yeah, you know, absolutely.
1: Yeah, so right. you find, uh, for example, different ministries that are under the control of different uh, political parties. And they, for example, when it comes to procurement, might have contracts with certain companies or NGOs that happen to just be owned by exactly the same people who are in control of these ministries. Um, Or money just gets stolen and is pocketed and never reaches its intended audience, uh, which is the Lebanese uh, population or the refugee population in Lebanon. So this has been the dynamic. And of course, there's a risk of this continuing with the IMF uh aid just on a larger grant and people trying to position themselves Hmm. um in order to benefit uh from this cash flow into the country of course there's a huge risk of that happening
0: is there any way for that kind of entity to maybe be more cautious at least in terms of making sure the pain relief is is included but not giving the state sorry not giving the regime the protection it wants is there anything the imf could do in that sense So maybe limit limit regime protection.
1: I mean, one healthy thing that we've seen since October is the rise of independent economic voices Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. uh, coming up with concrete plans for what might rescue Lebanon's economy in this way or that way. And also citizens getting together, calling for accountability. So I think engaging civil society is hugely important because you need a watchdog you need someone to hold the state um, accountable and hold the powers uh, that control the state accountable so um Mm -hmm. you know state institutions need to have someone um assess their performance just because i say the state needs to be preserved doesn't mean the state gets a free a free ride either you know you have to have institutional processes and you have to have oversight by civil society one way or another so i think there is a way. Um, it will not be perfect, of course, mm-hmm. but I think even a step in that direction would still be significant in Lebanon.
0: Because you know, so
1: I... far there has been impunity all along.
0: Absolutely, and you know, and it is clear that the current regime is not a byproduct of the protests. It's not that the protesters were looking at this setup as their goal. That's clear. But I, I've interviewed more than maybe a dozen of the signatories to several of these economic reform. The the first one was an emergency plan. And then there was the LCPS that I think helped sort of conduct the second version. And there released sort of its own version. And a lot of these voices shared a similar kind of reluctance that the regime is even listening or he or the regime doesn't even seem to be taking heed to any of these concerns that the protesters understand what's at stake. The regime doesn't. And Mm. I wonder about the IMF kind of being falling, maybe being blamed at the end for having preserved something that is rotten at its core. And is there can could the protesters do something that would alleviate that issue? Or is there any kind of way to just make sure that the money ends up in the right place this time? Is Is there anything that could be done?
1: Yeah, I mean, for me, measures of accountability and transparency is, are what's needed. Um, mm-hmm. You have to have an independent entity assessing the performance of the government uh, when it comes to how this IMF uh, assistance is being handled. Mm-hmm. So far, we have not had that. The state in Lebanon.
0: That's something that should be said from, yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah, absolutely. The Mm. state in Lebanon uh, is always seen as this entity that is detached from the people. Um, And this is wrong because, as I was saying, the the, the concept of the state is about the people being part of it. But in Lebanon, unfortunately, people have become conditioned to just looking at the state um, at best with ambivalence. Um, And and this should change. So there were never really serious attempts at holding um, politicians and, and, uh, you know, political representatives accountable before. Um, But now is the time and it is possible. And uh, the IMF can integrate that in terms of the reforms it insists uh, on in the package.
0: Well, that's good also. So in a way that that could be part of the negotiations, that if you really want this money, we need to have full oversight. And that actually might be the first time in my lifetime that I would actually have real hope that this could be a turning point. Now, in terms of protesters reaching at least state level and becoming part of the state, contributing to the state, is this simply simply an issue of politics in terms of just elections, getting in power? Is it something that's more traditional you just need to somehow enter Parliament, and even if it's one or two or three voices, that's better than nothing. And hoping that this kind of grows over time, or is there something more fundamental at stake that, prior to getting to that stage, more has to be done? Because I, I just, I can, I can see a situation where Parliament, even if it has some representation from the protesters, it's still the Parliament that I know, which and mm. it's, it's and I this goes back to what you were saying earlier that I deep down still have that reluctance, I don't see Parliament as being able to address issues. And I think that is for a number of reasons. But primarily, it's just the structure that we know has not served Lebanon's interest. So I wonder if there's anything there in terms of just how to get how to actually translate these protester demands into politics, the way we know politics.
1: Yeah, you remind me of an article I wrote a few years ago saying there is no politics in the Arab world. Um, (laughs) Because politics in the full sense of the world is is not how it is actually practiced um, in many places in the region, with maybe now the exception of Tunisia that's heading in the right direction. But when it comes to Lebanon, it's not so simple. It's not a case of the protesters running for election and having seats in parliament. And that's because... The political system itself is rotten and needs to change. So there is no point in trying to have change from within mm. when you're sitting in a, in a rotten basket. Um, yeah. This is not going to achieve much. Even if we have uh, 20% of parliament as things stand with you know independent voices, they're going to be overwhelmed. Right. So the only way is to change the system altogether. But how to get there, I think an interim step is, um, as I said, we're witnessing the beginning, the very beginning of this. Mm. The first step is holding people accountable. Mm. If there Mm. are independent bodies that are set up as watchdogs that hold the government accountable, forces certain files to be open for scrutiny, um, uh, enforcing transparency, even to a degree, this is an important first step. Um, We're also seeing focus on um, intermediary organizations, uh, syndicates, labor unions. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. These in Lebanon um, uh, are witnessing um, much more interest uh, in their operations and composition than ever. And it's perhaps because a lot of the people who want change in the country recognize that running for parliament is is not going to achieve change. However, maybe they could start with this in a way outer circle. Uh, uh, organizations and work their way through that way. Hmm. I think if you do that and you have enough pressure groups, plus time will be on our side in the long run once the uh, political dinosaurs die, um, <laughs> then you can talk about uh, potential for changing the system. But this is not something that I foresee happening in the next, let's say, five years even. It's going to take Much
0: longer than that. Oh, so this is really a long-term process. So, okay. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I I like that you're framing it this way, that all these things have to happen at once, but it's also stretched. It's not, there's no, uh, there's no short-term gains here. This is very long-term yeah and
1: this is this is something i struggle with all the time when i talk to policymakers in Mm. the west Mm. whether we're talking about lebanon or any other country usually it's about so what can happen in the next six months and what can we achieve in a year and i say problem is this you know policy of yours is being formulated on a short-term basis whereas the goals you ultimately want to achieve Need sometimes a generation to be realized, so there's always this 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 disconnect that I that I face. Um, and so yeah, we, we we should not lose hope. We should be patient. We should be realistic. And as I said, regressions are highly likely. Yeah, but that doesn't mean that it's over.
0: If we go back to the policy side, and just in terms of, I know that they you're I I mean, what you just described is something that I've kind of witnessed tangentially that. The patience is thin when it comes to Western policymaking, or at least um, if it's not thin, it's very short term. Yeah. And they want immediate, immediate uh, steps. If the West, or at least if policy decisions in the West are still relevant, and I want to get into this subject with you, if it actually matters whether or not the West is curious or willing to help or willing to be a productive player in this whole enterprise. Are there any sort of structural changes that protesters could do so that there is a mechanism to communicate. And I say this in the sense that we've seen a very fluid protest movement. Uh, we've not I mean, seven months into it, there's no leader. And that's still a good thing. I think it's actually a, a blessing that there's no leadership yet. Very fluid. And the names that appear are not leadership names. These are just names associated with the protest, but they're not leadership. Is there any structural changes that need to be made so that western policymakers have something to engage and i ask this in terms of just the way i know western policy making that they look to communicate they want to communicate with someone or something and i get the feeling at least that this time around there isn't much of that happening this is a domestic issue it's fluid and the west is still stuck in the same kind of paradigm of if we have to talk to someone, it's, it's the regime. There's no, one really, mm. there's no one else to speak to. Is there anything there in that kind of dilemma that maybe the West could maybe learn from or the protesters could maybe facilitate to make it a little more productive long-term?
1: I can tell you from my own um, conversations with uh, policymakers about this. Um, when protests were happening in Lebanon, A lot of Western policymakers just dismissed them. They Mm -hmm. didn't want to pay attention. They didn't want to dedicate time to looking at what was happening, because to them, this was an episode that was going to end. They were basically counting on the powers that be to overwhelm the protests. They were not taking them seriously at all.
0: Even at the beginning, the first few... Oh, really? So it was unfortunately
1: Hmm. yeah there was a lot a lot of a lot of that because they were so used to having the uh, same old elites in Lebanon be their interlocutors and these elites had proven to be so resilient over the years that you know these uh, Western policymakers just regarded them almost as um, a feature uh, of Lebanon like uh, like (laughs) Balbek
0: So in other which words, of course is yeah. it's the same it's as old as anything in other words this is how it is there's no negotiating yeah 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 yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. they just they just regarded it as as you know part of the status quo that is immovable which of course is very problematic yeah. and i personally as someone who works in policy i i try to you know say actually you shouldn't dismiss these protests because this is the starting point for something that's going to create change in the long term however mm. of course by then you will not be in power <laughs> you western policymakers. right and that's the other thing because usually western policy is very much um focused on the term in which someone is serving and that's why they want short-term results because you know if someone's in power for x number of years this is more or less what they kind of care about before they you know leave leave their seats. So in general you find very few projects, for example mm, even mm. projects about uh, supporting a Democratic transition or whatever that are multi-year uh, It's kind of very short term for 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 the most part So it was very difficult to get them to pay attention and when I was talking to my friends in Lebanon who were protesting I said to them, you're basically on your own. All those people talking about the protests as a Western conspiracy, it's actually the opposite. The West is barely noticing what is right. what is actually happening. Right. Um, but in a way, that's not such a bad thing, to be honest, because I, I look at Tunisia and I firmly believe that part of the reason why Tunisia is succeeding in relative terms is because it's, not subjected to so much meddling by outside powers so i don't think that we should necessarily now think oh how can we court the west Mm, especially now mm. with the coronavirus crisis to be honest most countries in the world are now very much inward looking it's going to change um geopolitics it's going to change political dynamics in general you
0: know i'm I'm, Um, i'm glad that you actually i'm glad that you brought this up because i in the back of my mind, and I, I agree with what you've just said that there's it seems like there's disinterest on 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 many sides, but that at the end of the day, the geopolitical calculations do impact Lebanon more than a place like Tunisia, mm-hmm. and that I just want to before getting into the geopolitics, at least the way that it's sort of addressed usually, I want to tie it back into the protesters noticing that no one is interested, and maybe only sort of seeing a. A, a, a domestic issue that this is properly domestic is that a good thing that that this is focused inwards as opposed to uh the usual players kind of getting involved is that is that in a sense good for the protesters
1: i think it's good because it it makes them more self-sufficient mm. i mm. mean lebanon uh, is is in a way different from uh, other places in the region like say tunisia and that lebanon was always um Uh, A playground for external powers regional powers international powers and in many cases we saw people in a way perform for the eyes of the external patrons or potential external patrons Mm -hmm. so you saw political performances aimed at attracting a foreign patron or showing that you are the domestic um, uh, tool that could be relied on by this external patron um, with these protests, we don't see that dynamic at play at all. Right. So I think it's a good thing. I think, you know, people are not saying if we act in this way, maybe the U.S. will support us and that way we can overwhelm, you know, the other side.
0: Mm-hmm. We're
1: mm-hmm. not seeing that at all. And I and I think this is, yeah, for me, it's positive.
0: But Okay, so in that sense, let's say that there's only good to come out of that kind of expectation and that for the most part, this this mm-hmm. remains a domestic issue. The issue that prevents Lebanon from in a way being like Tunisia that there is a there is a substate group in Lebanon that seems to be hell-bent on preserving the status quo it's the status quo that has worked for many Lebanese politicians politicians that have at times opposed that group and at times worked with that group and at times indirectly working with that group but the whole regime has sort of like you said earlier has kind of entrenched itself in a preserve mode and that sub-state group has largely defended that regime the regime that you've been describing and we've been talking about is addressing that group's abilities whether it's through weapons security or defense and foreign policy all that should that be part of the protester demands and i mean that in terms of Should this be addressed head on or is this something that should be left for later or left for a larger regional decision, whether this is Iran and Saudi Arabia negotiating or whether even for that matter, it could be America and Iran finding some way forward together, an international arrangement as opposed to Lebanese saying this should end the way like many things that have plagued this country in the post war order should end. Or is it too complicated at this point? The protesters should not address it altogether.
1: Well, it's, as you said, it's complicated. The issue is it's, it's two things. Mm. One, you have the domestic dimension. At the domestic level, you have one entity in Lebanon that is well-equipped militarily, and mm. that is now the most powerful political and military actor in the country, more powerful than the army, more powerful than any other political uh, party.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: How can you overwhelm that if you are a protester? Right. You cannot do that um, militarily, obviously, and you cannot do that politically either because you're just, you know, being overwhelmed domestically. So it doesn't mean that you abandon the cause, mm. but it means you have to be realistic in, in, in what you can achieve. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But the issue is this entity, and here we're, of course, talk about Hezbollah, is only powerful because of its support by iran we have to you know i'm not saying there aren't large numbers of people domestically who support it of course but the power it has could only come at this high level through this high level external support from iran and that means that the future of hezbollah in lebanon is intimately tied to the future of Iran's regional influence in the Middle East, which is, of course, a sticking point for the Trump administration in particular. Now, Iran, in a way, is waiting it out mm-hmm. because they are looking to see whether Donald Trump is going to be reelected or not. If Donald Trump is reelected, he will continue the US policy of so called maximum pressure on Iran, which aims to squeeze Iran financially which of course has played out in Lebanon. Yes. What's happening in Lebanon is part of this, and this is why it's it's complicated. Mm-hmm, yeah. um, this is why I'm saying I wish Lebanon was like Tunisia, in which geopolitics kind of doesn't matter, but geopolitics will affect what happens um, in Lebanon. So part of the reason why um, uh, Hezbollah is... Uh, upset at the behavior of the banks in Lebanon as as, uh, demonstrated in its leader's uh, uh, speech when he said the banks became more American than the Americans. Uh, He said that about uh, banks in Lebanon. Why did he say that? It's because the banks were um, complying with uh, U.S. uh, anti-terrorism financing and anti-money laundering uh, measures that they, uh, you know, called on lebanese banks to abide by and this directly hurt hezbollah's economic transactions in lebanon so we're seeing that the economic maximum pressure strategy followed by the united states vis-a-vis iran is having an impact on lebanon but because the united states took the decision not to attack iran militarily which i think is a good thing because attacking iran militarily is just going to be a disaster for everyone this is going to take a long time so
0: to really yield results. So it's still, in a, in a way, it's something that the Lebanese, unfortunately, or not the Lebanese, the protesters, are not. It's that they're not able to for the right reasons, and therefore this should not necessarily be the focus of their, of their attack. That they should maybe leave it to the players to solve. Am I getting that right? That this is that this should remain a. a a regional international goal it's not for the lebanese to determine
1: yeah that's why i was saying that it's a domestic issue um the 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 protests and what's happening and whether to rely on the west or not it's it's a domestic issue Mm, mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. the the protest dimension of calling for rights and kind of setting in motion uh the process that will eventually lead to the establishment of um you know good governance in lebanon this is a domestic issue they sadly do not have the ability to shape geopolitics. Right. That's what I'm saying. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I sort of, I find myself at times a broken record. And I, yeah. and I always sense that at the core, at the core, that if this issue is not addressed, regardless of how it's addressed, if it's not by the protesters, some international arrangement, if it's not tackled, that Lebanon seems to end up in the same place, that a sub-state group, Hezbollah today, could be another group later. Other types of groups have emerged over time in Lebanese history, but it's Hezbollah today. If it's not part of the reform package, that Lebanon cannot emerge properly in the direction that you and I would want it to look and, and emerge. And I don't know if I'm too pessimistic in that sense that maybe it's the issue of weapons beyond state authority, and whether or not that's fundamental to reform. And in my mind, I always see it as the first step that you need to have a sovereign state. And then you can reform that state. But maybe I'm getting it wrong. Maybe it maybe it doesn't need to be done that way that you can reform other things first, and leave that issue for later. And I always get that opinion when I speak to sort of uh, different thinkers, yours include you included. But for me, it's kind of it's essential. And if, if I'm getting that wrong, what are the what is the likelihood of reform sticking? If that group supported by the Iran, the way you described it, is left out of the equation by all players. In other words, the Americans do not push hard. Uh, the Saudis reach some some rapprochement with Iran. And the sticking point is sort of there. No one is talking about it. Does that translate into reform taking hold in Lebanon.
1: Yeah. The way you put it though is too black and white. Because <laughs> there is no formula. There is no right and wrong in terms my black of how shirt you shirt
0: for the metal the metal yeah. in you. And I know you're wearing black too. But you're right, I should I should wear a white shirt next time. <laughs> <laughs> well I mean because there you
1: know <laughs> like a chicken and egg what comes first you know do you do you establish sovereignty then deal with things or do you you know deal with this thing and that I don't think it matters frankly how mm-hmm. you mm-hmm. get there mm-hmm. but what you're saying about this being a serious hurdle mm-hmm. I wholeheartedly agree with mm-hmm. how can you have a state that some people see as a state within a state you know having Hezbollah there or as I see it a state that's actually hollowed out from within that is being controlled not just by Hezbollah but by all the other profiteers that mm-hmm. are now mm-hmm. calling themselves political leaders in Lebanon but with Hezbollah having the you know distinction of having weapons that it can use to intimidate its opponents and basically have its way yeah. so that can, you know that is the opposite of reform that mm-hmm. is the opposite of transparency and good governance and accountability because here you have a group that has exceptional status. Um, So I agree with you that this needs to be addressed, but how to get there, there is no one magic formula. That's what I'm saying. That's why I'm saying it's not so black and white. It's not like you got it right or you got it wrong or I got it right or I got it wrong. There are many, many, you know, many routes to get there. Um, What the US is pursuing right now is the long route, which is the economic route. And the basis of Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. maximum pressure strategy is that if you weaken Iran significantly, it will then have to make very tough choices about its regional involvement uh, in the Middle East, because right. it will not be able to support all the groups that it's currently supporting at the same level, because it's in, you know supporting groups in Iraq, uh, in Yemen, in Syria, in Lebanon, et cetera, and it will need to prioritize how its influence is being wielded. Does it really want to deploy so many fighters or maybe it can resort to soft power like it used to pre-2011 in Syria, for instance. Right. So modifying its behavior. And then when Hezbollah um, basically through the US sanctions that are imposed on Iran and also the compliance by the Lebanese banks, et cetera, and perhaps IMF measures that call for more accountability, finds that it's sources of funding are getting a bit tighter i mean right now it's nowhere near facing that but long term it might and if that were to happen we have to remember that a lot of people who support hezbollah in lebanon even though they may express ideological support deep down they support it because they're benefiting economically or because they're scared not everyone who supports hezbollah necessarily supports it because these people wholeheartedly believe in everything Hezbollah represents. So if you put economic pressure um, on this group, then it might lose some of its glory in a way in Lebanon. And this is what the US maximum pressure strategy is about. But this will take years to play out.
0: The, the images we saw from Nabatae, and at times even sort of, let's say more Hezbollah friendly terrain, do you, do you put the onus on the economic factor there, that these were people that were outraged, that they weren't getting the money that they were used to? Is that is that right?
1: Yeah, that has definitely played a role, hmm. definitely. I mean, um, for example, as we know, Hezbollah has been fighting in Syria for a number of years, which means it has diverted some of its resources there. Yeah. Meanwhile, because of the economic crisis in Lebanon, some of Hezbollah's own supporters in the south have found themselves... Um, unable to make enough money to make ends meet. And they had looked at Hezbollah as the provider. And they started to question why Hezbollah is deploying its resources next door in Syria when it could deploy these resources to, you know, support them. So this patron-client relationship um, in a way started to backfire for Hezbollah. Um, And and so yeah, the economic dimension is very important.
0: So financial security, in a sense matters more than sectarian politics the way we know it the way lebanon's experienced it you know i'm going to now shift completely because I've, I've never done this before never talked about this issue never had a segue to this subject i mean there's no natural kind of way to introduce this i'm gonna ask you something that i'm concerned about okay now You are from my generation because you have appreciation for a form of music that I think it's still appreciated, but not nearly as much as, let's say, the 1990s uh, metal music. And you've been discussing politics the whole time and and everything that we maybe I think uh, things that really matter for Lebanon. But, you know, music matters regardless. Music is part of the story. Music was part of the protest movement, too. There were many melodic chants. And I think some of the uh, more vulg- the vulgar expressions are born out of out of music. I mean, this is musical expression. I think it's, it's very powerful. Um, I don't know enough about metal music. But when I used to give the tour, whenever I can give the tour, uh, the tour assistant is a metal head. I mean, very, very into metal music and always, always upset when metal bands are banned from Lebanon. I think the most recent example was pantera if i'm not mistaken no se- sepultura so sorry so that shows you that's what i meant <laughs> you know this proof that you're the expert on this subject i actually meant sepulturas panteras too uh, that's that's old news they,
1: they so, no longer exist and they, two of them are dead so
0: <laughs> I, <laughs> You know what? I couldn't have said that better. So thank you. Sepultura, the more immediate metal band that was banned in Lebanon. Was Pantera at some point banned, if I'm not mistaken, when I was younger? Maybe. No, I got that wrong. No, okay. I mean,
1: hey, when you were younger. In the 90s, when Pantera still existed, (laughs) uh, not only did they um, never even um, consider coming to Lebanon, they probably didn't even know what Lebanon is.
0: (laughs) And to be honest, I wouldn't blame them either. Why would Pantera (laughs) even go beyond the Yeah. okay. but let's Sepultura was probably less than a year ago. It was I mean, it's very recent that they were uh, not allowed in. Metal music is one form, we had Mishra Leila that was banned in Lebanon for performing what was deemed to be risky music in Lebanon. We've had all types of cultural expression curtailed. And uh, I ask you about metal music in particular is because I found out that you're a co-founder of the World Metal Congress, which I loved even knowing that you're involved in this world to begin with. Middle (laughs) East analysis and metal music combined. This issue of musical expression, or at least free thinkers, people that want to hear music on their terms, is a evolution taking place in the way Lebanon, or, or for that matter, Lebanese, see themselves. Because it's easy, it's easy for me to understand why someone would want to hear a band playing music, and I also immediately recognize why it's so difficult to do that in Lebanon and that, to a degree, the state, or not the state necessarily, the regime and religion, which go hand in hand in Lebanon, have prevented that from taking place. Is any of this moving in a different direction today, knowing that we've seen all types of displays of expression in the last months in Lebanon? Could you imagine a day where Sepultura or any type of band that wants to play music is welcomed freely in Lebanon and the religious reluctance is not part of the story, that we've reached the point where it's fine. You're, you're allowed to express your music and people can listen to it on their terms.
1: Yeah, I can, I can see that happening because I, I still have high hopes for the future. So the youth who I was talking about earlier, they're gonna be the real bringers of change and they're going to um, make sure that we have freedom of expression in Lebanon further down the line. But for now, I mean, the restrictions that uh, certain bands are facing are part of a wider uh, uh, issue, which is freedom of expression in general and the Mm. transgressions, not just on music, but also journalists, for example, or people posting things on social media. Very often, um, powers that be, let's put it this way, Mm. Turn to stirring moral outrage when they want to divert attention away from their own incompetence. And so in Lebanon, we've seen metal music, you know, being subjected to this, or say, Leila, la la la, at moments in which people started talking about other things like uh, the performance of the government or the economic crisis in the country. Mm. So in a way, you distract people by stirring emotions and, and saying this is against religion or this is against morals or, or this has insulted a leader or whatever. For me, it's a tactical move by a government trying to cover up for its own inadequacy
0: and in government here when you say powers that be does that include religious authority the way we understand absolutely it, Lebanon? yeah mm. Mm. absolutely yeah okay so i like that you framed it in a freedom of expression period this involves all types of expression it's not about a group of people that want to hear music per se it's about expression no. in its purest form in general but yeah you're, you're hopeful that this is being Tackled this time in, in Lebanese history?
1: I mean, awareness about freedom of expression is growing so much in Lebanon, mm. and, and it's really fantastic. I mean, now we have lawyers volunteering to take on the cases of people who have been arrested uh, for expressing certain views, etc. Yes. You have uh, awareness videos being made and disseminated on social media by all kinds of civil society organizations. Uh, people basically alerting one another uh, and not just, you know, taking it as given. Um, So there is a lot of awareness and and this is an important first step.
0: I'm going to just wrap it up by saying that I think this global perspective that you're sharing, whether it's politics, economics or even music for that matter, that this is a global trend and that you are contributing to metal music in that global (laughs) way. And I'm going to link up the website because if I understood right, you're working on a a theatrical version of this story as well, that this will kind of be performed. And this is a, I mean, I think, yes, connectivity and Lebanon being part of a larger story. This is healthy that long-term, this sort of interconnectedness, I think only benefits Lebanon and that it, it is time that Lebanese expect more and that there's, able to see so much progress beyond their borders. And they're also able to look next door, and see the pain and suffering, but not necessarily fear it, saying, we can still move forward, we don't have to be worried about whether it's the old way of governing, we don't have to be worried about sectarian sort of fear mongering, that we can actually move forward, and we deserve it. So I appreciate all the positivity you've shared. And uh, thank you for sharing Metallica yesterday you took (laughs) you know you reminded me how old i am that i don't know the difference between pantera and sepultura and metallica's from the 1990s that's all
1: well i i i tweeted um uh some lyrics from king nothing by metallica because um i mean i still obviously listen to heavy metal and those lyrics really summed up a lot of what is happening in the middle east right now so i put the hashtag mena at the bottom, whether it's Lebanon, whether it's Syria, whether it's Egypt or many other places in the region, people being obsessed with power and then one day finding themselves with greed, having blinded them to the degree that they have become nothing. um, This is kind of (laughs) reminded me of of hollow autocrats um, across the region. So yeah, I mean, heavy metal, is i mean it appealed to me in the first place because it's music that speaks about issues Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and it's it's not fluff like pop music often is and um and i you know think it will always be relevant and that's why i've managed to juggle politics and heavy metal for several years now
0: in my (laughs) lifetime i never imagined metallica and middle east analysis being combined and you did it i love that where's your crown king nothing of course that fits the moment perfectly Lena, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it.
1: A pleasure.